Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Ted Sides is the Managing Director of Hidden Brook Investments, LLC. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Hidden Brook Investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Hidden Brook Investments may maintain positions and securities or managers discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Larry Koshard, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of the University of Virginia's Investment Management Company, also known as UVIMCO. In this role, Larry provides leadership, connectivity to the university, and responsibility for the university's $8.5 billion long-term investment pool. 
Before joining Uvimco in 2011, he served as Georgetown University's first in-house chief investment officer. Prior to that, he was managing director of equity and hedge fund investments for the Virginia Retirement System. From 1997 to 2004, Larry was an adjunct and later full-time professor at Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce. He spent his formative professional years in debt capital markets at Goldman Sachs and in corporate finance at Fannie Mae and DuPont. Larry received his BA in economics from William & Mary, an MBA from the University of Rochester, and an MA and PhD in economics from the University of Virginia. Our conversation covers tricky issues involving the internal management of portfolios alongside external manager allocations, Uvimco's five core principles, and the consideration of absolute and relative metrics in asset allocation and performance. Our deep dive on Uvimco's core principles and asset allocation provides an inside look at the subtleties required to maintain seemingly simple tenants. I'm quite sure everyone that touches the University of Virginia will come away thrilled that Larry is the steward of their capital. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please tell a friend, just one friend, and help spread the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Larry Koshard. Larry? Yes, Ted. Good to see you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Great to see you. You're welcome. Let's start at the beginning, which usually sure. is a good place to start. How did you ever get interested in investing? My dad was a stockbroker with E.F. Hutton and then had his own investment firm. And when E.F. Uh, Hutton talks, people, people listen. People listen. It was a very effective marketing slogan. was very uh, captivated by that. A lot of discussion about stocks. I can remember when the first publicly traded options came on the market. I remember talking about that, but always thought I was going to be an engineer, more of a math science person, but majored in economics, got an MBA, did corporate finance. At that was first job out of first job out of MBA okay. program was at uh, DuPont and their corporate finance group, and you know, kind of the range of experiences I had between working for a large multinational corporation like DuPont, be exposed to how their capital allocation decisions were, were being made, then worked at Fannie Mae and the corporate finance at Fannie Mae, but you know, exposed to a large part of the fixed income market, and then did debt capital markets at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, you know, had very different experiences, had a large influence in many respects in terms of how value is created and destroyed at, at large corporations. A lot of people don't have the benefit of having done that. And so were, were there specific lessons that you pulled out of those early experiences? Sure, you know, I remember I was on the capital markets desk in the stock market crash of 87, October 87. And we're on the debt side, but everything just stopped. There was no new issuance. Everyone was following what was going on in the equity markets. But one of the things that was really made a big impact. At the time, Goldman Sachs was still a partnership. And you saw what happened was that day, and partners at Goldman Sachs were always extremely hands-on, very talented. But you could see it firsthand where the senior people got on the desk and were actually actively involved in the trading because their money's on the line. Their, their partnership capital is on the line. And so kind of contrasting that 
with the experience I had before that earlier in my career at DuPont, where you have a large public company, you don't have that same notion of skin in the game. Anecdotes like that have had a a pretty meaningful impact in the way I think about who we want to partner with, what does the structure of the partnership arrangement look like. So when did you start thinking about investing with a broader allocator's lens? This is somewhat serendipitous. Is So I'm a professor at UVA teaching finance, and I was appointed to the state pension, the Virginia Retirement Systems Investment Committee in 19, early 1998. And it really opened up a whole window into how large pools of institutional capital are invested, large asset owners. At the time, VRS was probably 30 billion-ish in size. But just being involved with that, which was a very well-run institution, um, a woman named Nancy Everett was the CIO, was just a wonderful person, wonderful investor, wonderful leader, was very involved with that. Joe Grills, the retired CIO of the IBM pension, was involved with that. Lou Mulcher, the long-time-serving CIO at the University of Richmond, who then went on to found private advisors, was on. We had a, a, It was a very good investment committee. So... I was very drawn in to that as a way of investing and allocating and the issues that arise with that, whether it's the manager selection, where do you focus your efforts in terms of how you allocate across the managers, across the different strategies. And at a board retreat, an annual board retreat, Nancy Everett had just lost her head of public equity to go to an investment firm and she asked me if I would ever consider taking that position and then overseeing a couple of the people. One was they had some internal management that was quantitative oriented. They had external managers, uh, both international, U.S. And I did, I agreed to do that. And part of it was kind of a return to the quote unquote real world. But B is I've really enjoyed the experience I had on the investment committee and it still allowed me to be in the classroom. So I still taught two classes one class per semester, uh, fixed income one semester and investments the other semester. So it allowed me to still be in the classroom, maintain the relationship with UVA, but then go on to, to be, as you say, an allocator. And what were the formative lessons you learned in that seat that were maybe different from what you expected going in? So one is, you know, VRS, at that point, it was very much of an experiment of whether they could do some internal management. And at, at that point, it was only about $100 million that was being managed internally. And very talented investor named J.T. Greer started this as a process and trying to learn off of a, lo- a number of the quantitative managers that were employed by them at the time. And so it was built out and then seeing some of the challenges of how do you kind of maintain what you could, you, you could do as an institution like that and have any kind of edge of an investing. And as it pertained to some of the, the quantitative strategies, because we actually took in a lot of those, which you know, are still done today in terms of looking at value, looking at earnings quality, looking at a number of factors that a lot of quantitative managers look at, but being able to employ that in an extremely low-cost manner 
but knowing that probably the best way to implement that is in a very low tracking error approach. So tracking error on the order of, let's say, 100, 200 basis points. Because knowing that if you tried to have too big a tracking error, if you really underperform for a period of time, you'd have to have, have the hard decision, constant difficult decision, what do we do with this? And how does it compete with the external managers? So it was intentionally done at a relatively low tracking error. And then kind of pushing the envelope in terms of adding strategies, whether it's different cap sizes, different styles, different geographies. And today, more and more we hear about whether it's family offices or endowments, people thinking of investing directly, might be co-invests in private equity or different direct investments in part to defray the layer of fees. What's different as an organization like VRS, where we talk about it with with, uh, University of Virginia today, of having a quantitative team internal and maybe a fundamental internal and and what works and what doesn't? Yeah, there's no, this is a tough one. I mean, this is something that we've been debating internally. Is there a way that we can do internal management? And we've gone in many circles. And ultimately what I, I try to always come back to is, you know, what is our edge? What is not only our edge up front, but what is a sustainable edge? In the instance of VRS, and you certainly see this a lot with some of the large public Canadian funds and other funds that have very big pools of capital deploy. They can't be as active, meaning taking the type of tracking error that we take, hiring very concentrated managers that are generally very capacity constrained. They're not going to be able to access them in as much of a meaningful way as we can. So A, those strategies don't compete. A, the strategy of VRS employees may not compete as effectively in our you know eight plus billion dollar pool of capital so then the question would be versus again the large canadian funds gic sovereign wealth funds where they just have you know hundreds of billions of dollars to invest and they have to f- figure out ways they can just eke out and earn anything you know extra 50 100 basis points and you have to be a little more passive and the way you can scale that. For us then, if we were to, again, our ideal manager is one that is concentrated on the public side, uh, they generally are small, to try to find someone that could compete with that, we have to make sure that it's sustainable, meaning if they don't have any relationship with the UVA, we're gonna have to pay them a market wage. I think that becomes potentially the distraction within the UVA community. And certainly, yeah. so that's certainly prob- been proven the case that's, with Harvard. That's not going to be yeah. necessarily sustainable. And then we just have to figure out if we were to, because I think we might be able to, just based on what we learned from our managers, figure out a way of putting on positions that may be interesting. But how do we manage those going forward? How <laughs> yeah. do we decide when to exit? How do we decide when to add a new position? As opposed to what, in theory, because we can get back to kind of core tenets. You know, we think of ourselves as long-term investors. In theory, there's certain great companies that our managers are naturally gravitate towards that we could just hold forever. And that sounds great in theory. And if we can do that without paying higher fees, that sounds wonderful in theory. But figuring out how you do actually do that on a sustainable basis, I think is going to come down to something as simple as is there someone that I could find that quality-wise as an investment manager is as good as we could find by hiring them externally that we could sustainably keep them in the team 
and it doesn't become a distraction to the team. They're not, you know, they it, it doesn't become the situation where they are viewed as the the rock star, and then the other players are not the rocks. So there's there's a lot of ancillary issues that need to be addressed because my view is what makes us effective is that we work well as a team and we are a little more general as some other some of our other competitors we we they all think as capital allocators what is the highest and best use of capital as opposed to filling up a bucket and anything that would negatively impact that that current collaborative setting would be a negative and then can you keep that person on the team is there something that would be versus someone that comes in views as an opportunity to get seated to develop a track record and then uses that to go out and raise a fund which then leaves you with the same problem of uh, what do you do with that portfolio and then what do you do with that portfolio and you would have to certainly have the discipline to shut it down but i've seen too many instances where that doesn't happen and so Trying to figure out what is our sustainable edge, I don't think that's it right now. We constantly focus on it, is that in a lower return world, fees take a disproportionately larger percentage of the total return, and anything that can be done to knock those down a bit is you know going right to our yeah. bottom line. So trying to figure out ways that we can reduce fees without sacrificing quality is a conundrum that we constantly try to address. We do a little bit by co-investing on the private side, but it's it's not that scalable either. You know, this is a super interesting conversation in this world where people are trying to reduce fees and do more themselves. The the classic dichotomy from the past was Yale and Harvard, where when Jack Meyer was at Harvard, it was mostly an internal effort. And when many years later he decided to leave, Harvard was left with basically a pile of cash to put to work, whereas Yale's model likely sustains itself past Dave Swenson for many years because it's mostly you know very well-selected external managers. It's a really fun discussion. I really want to circle back to a higher level of how you're thinking about things. Let's touch a little bit on you left VRS and took over as CIO at Georgetown. Yes. And, and that was really a build. It was. Yeah. And so before I get to that, let's yeah. go back to VRS. One of the things I learned more than anything at, at VRS was being exposed to how large pools of capital were being managed, but also saw across the sort of peer universe some of the bigger mistakes that are made by large pools of capital, large investors. Such as? Are when something doesn't go well, is just pulling the plug at the wrong time. And at the kind of the one extreme, it is when things don't go well of a sort of a, at the macro level, 08, 09. And you had a certain risk tolerance you had thought you were, you know, kind of were managing to. But then all of a sudden, there's this sort of desire, which could be rational, but is probably irrational to just de-risk at the bottom. And there are many smaller versions of that, whether it's, okay, let's invest. So you go back to, you know, 19, the early 1990s, a lot of big pools of capital their first foray into the emerging markets were at the prior peak of emerging markets in the early 90s. And everyone got in and then they underwhelmed for a period of time and a lot of people just pulled the plug at the wrong time. So one of the observations, which again, you get back to this, whether it's tracking error or just risk tolerance, is this notion of whether it's risk at the entire portfolio 
or whether it's risk of how much you're deviating from your benchmark or your peers, there are certain uh, points past which you just don't want to go. So if you're an out, if you're just too much of an outlier, and all of a sudden it doesn't work, if you're investing in a very public setting and the extreme is a public pension, you know that this might be the right thing to do, and it's going to work out in the long run. But it could very well be that you're not there to experience the long run. And so having and there's no way to quantify that. Every institution is very different in terms of the, their willingness to take risk in an absolute sense or on a rel, in a relative sense. And when I use risk, I don't mean it in the classic case of absolute loss, you know, loss of capital, but more just how much you're underperforming. Yeah, deviation. Yeah. And, you know, th- there's. You know, everyone kind of will kind of poo-poo the notion of this, you know, being so benchmark focused or peer focused. And I agree in theory, if you're managing your own money, but if you're managing someone else's money, you have to at least have an understanding that there's probably some either absolute loss or relative loss that you can't go beyond and really continue to sit in that seat. And so that's something that was, I really understood. So with that said, you also don't want to get lured into just being a caretaker. Um, the worst thing you can do in the investment world is just saying whatever worked in the past is going to continue to work in the future. You need to constantly be looking for new ideas. And the new ideas could be at the security level, they could be at the strategy level, they could be at the manager level. You start off small, you do it well, and then you grow it. But understanding how you move things forward in a very public setting and having a qualitative assessment of the risk tolerance that an institution can bear. You can do all sorts of quantitative measures of what an institution should be able to bear, but it's really more of that qualitative component, which is how do they react in prior drawdowns? How do they react in prior situations where they underperform, not the absolute sense, but relative to peers, relative to benchmark? Is the board stable? Is the team stable? Meaning if there's been a lot of turnover, you're probably going to be more likely to do those irrational moves and getting out at the bottom. And so having that qualitative assessment, I really learned at VRS. So then you fast forward to when I was at Georgetown and you know, you you've gone from a situation where you have fabulous university undersized endowment that is being managed by the investment committee with the help of a consultant and you're moving to an internal investment office of trying to understand how do you manage that that again is consistent with the risk tolerance of the institution um, the desire to be better than because I think again managing by a, you know, a part-time investment committee is, is a challenged way. And there are a lot of pools of capital that are invested that way. But then bringing someone on, you have to have an understanding that you need to communicate a lot. They have to be aware of everything you're doing, communicate, over-communicate. And when you're going to do a new strategy, a new manager is really lay out the case well. So again, there'd be less likely to just do the wrong thing at the wrong time. But I love, and we were talking earlier about how you're spending your day today here in New York. And, and one of the things you said is you like to have one-on-one meetings with 
the people on your investment committee with great regularity. Yes. I think it's probably one of the things that's so underappreciated in your seat of how important it is to communicate to your core client, who is not just the university, but the important decision makers that comprise an investment committee. Now, at the same time, those tend to be term seats. Yes. So there's this constant need to educate and re-educate and continue that process over time. It's, it's one of the, I think, underappreciated parts of this position, because a lot of people will say, unlike you know an investment management firm where you have multiple clients, and the challenge of that is you're constantly having to educate. You have to do the same thing with us. And sort of the people that do well are ones that really embrace that as opposed to viewing that as it's just, you know, it's a, a waste of time because it's not. I mean, A, you're creating more stability for the organization and the investment process. You can you can act more as a long-term investor as opposed to being constantly whipsawed. But B, we learn some of our best ideas from our board slash investment committee. There's a big percentage of things that we've done that have either been sourced or the diligence was assisted by using that board. Yeah. And that really is part of the secret sauce of what we do and what I know my peers do at other universities is that alumni network, uh, which then kind of at a pinnacle is our board, because we're constantly looking for members of our alumni that were, you know, kind of would be well suited as where they are in their career. Can they give us time to be on our board? And we get a lot of value. Yeah. So one of the things I'm most curious about in time horizons, when you got to Georgetown, it's a new internal office. And what you described is basically walk, crawl, run. Right. Like, yes. Let's that's, make, a good, that's a good way to describe right, it. Let's make sure that yes. the committee and everyone's on board with each incremental initial decision to build confidence so we can stay for the long term. How long did it take from the day you got there till a day where you felt – that the portfolio reflected your views from both both an asset allocation perspective and a manager implementation perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'd say three to four years at least. Because uh, even there, there was stability in the board, but you're having turnover. I had, in my six and a half years there, I had three chairs, all of whom were fabulous and you know, played the role of chair the right way of being very good at getting comments out of the rest of the board and giving feedback and or were fabulous but you know you just it takes a while so you're constantly evolving so your seat today is at the university of virginia uvimco and one of the things usually when we turn to how someone's thinking about allocating capital i love to ask people what do you believe about investing that governs how you think about asset allocation implementation and in your case there are five core principles that you brought that are repeated in your annual letters. And I'd love to ask you questions about each one, but why don't we start by your just saying, what are those five core principles? Well, the first one is the fact that we're a long-term investor. Everyone says they're a long-term investor. And getting back to some of the things I talked about before is, can you build a decision-making framework, a governance framework, and a team that will enable you to do that, knowing there are so many impediments, whether they're behavioral biases, whether they're organizational constraints to cause you to not behave that way, whether they're market constraints. I would argue that the world has become much more short-term focused, has become much more macro-focused, 
and you know one of the the dirty little secrets of the rise of ETFs one of the values is you can express in a very in a lower cost way various views of the market but that's also one of the downsides is because you're constantly buffeted with different views of the market of whether the fed is dovish or hawkish or taxes are going to go up or down or you know Europe is falling apart or now it's doing well or what's going on in China and you know every publication every you know whether it's CNBC Bloomberg Fox News business channel your know, people are just being buffeted by different macro views you know people are able to express those views through ETFs very easily and people have become much more short-term in their focus. And so trying to maintain that discipline of being a long-term investor and knowing that a lot of our edge is going to be getting to our second point, which is partnering with uh, managers that we think really are value-added over a long period of time. They tend to be very bottom-up, very company-specific. They tend to, as I said before, be you know, actively involved with shaping the future of those companies long-term shareholders, both on the public as well as private side, is partnering with those where a lot of the value is being created at the bottom-up level, at the company level, as opposed to more macro views that are going to be implemented by, by us in the portfolio. So long-term is the first partnering, partnering with great, extraordinary managers, which I would say at our size of right now, $8.5 billion, we're at a sweet spot. And I don't know exactly where that sweet spot is, but it's probably four or five billion up to, you know, fifteen to twenty billion. So we're kind of right in the middle, a sweet spot where I it's small enough I can do interesting things, but big enough that I can employ an extremely strong team. Before we go on to the third sure. one, you know, we've we've already talked about how you've sourced in some ways and really leveraging the alumni community and the. Uh, and the investment committee. I'm always curious. So the notion, this combination of long-term investing and partnering with extraordinary managers is great when you buy them. Yeah. Um, but you know, when we're applying Kenny Rogers to this, you got to know when to hold them and know when yeah, to fold them. It's a good question. And what happens over time, particularly right? A, a, a con- let's just think of a long-only manager. Maybe, let maybe private equity, a concentrated manager who's relatively low turnover somewhere along the way is likely to have a rough patch of performance. Right. And sometimes that's just expectations and it's a trough and you want to stay, stay your ground. And other times you look back and say, oh, yeah, they were concentrated, but they were just wrong on too many names right. and it never worked back. Right. How do you think through you know, when to hold them and when to fold them? So I'd, I'll talk about what I'd like us to do and in what we should be doing in theory and then what practice is. In theory, the performance, especially when you're, you're investing in concentrated managers, you have to know going in, there's going to be a lot of volatility, which again, gets very much diversified out when we combine them with other managers, with other investments. So the volatility in and of itself is, is not, for at the individual manager level, is not a problem. With that said, what could be a problem is if the manager themselves, the volatility that they're experiencing, does that cause their business to suffer? And so there's a, it's an existential threat yeah, to the organization. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it could very well be right that if you stayed along long enough with that manager that you'd be proven correct, but they may not be in it 
for the long run. So that's that's an issue. And how do they react? I saw you know many managers, and I'm sure you saw the same in the 08, 09 downturn. You saw some managers that were down 08, big. They behaviorally were fine. I'm sure they weren't perfectly fine, but <laughs> they then were up bigger the next year, such that um, they recouped all the losses and went well beyond that. And they had enough of a runway, meaning they had enough reputational capital that investors gave them enough of a, a break to do that. And then I saw other investors where they're down 40% and they're just scarred. They're done. They, they can't get back up on the horse after they've been thrown. And you don't always see that coming, but that's a problem. So that's something you have to watch out for. Yeah. Does You always have to look for, especially when you're with concentrated managers at extremes, does the extreme success or extreme failure change them as a person, as a manager? Meaning if they get extreme success, are they, do they then start becoming reckless? If they've had extreme failure, do they learn from that or do they just say, I'm, it's hard for me to manage risk anymore? And so that's one thing you do look for with those volatile strategies. But then what we'd like to do in theory is look for other characteristics as opposed to performance of, has the manager gotten too big? Has the manager lost their focus? Are they, you know, they've made a lot of money and money is it ultimately the sole motivator it becomes other things they just want to win. Most of the people that we all invest with are, you know, super competitive, whether it's in sports, whether it's in, in was in academics, whether it's now investing, they just want to be a winner. It doesn't matter how much money they have. And so, but has something impacted that level of competitiveness, that sort of 24-7 notion of the amount of effort you have to put in to be a winner in a very competitive investing environment? Is that still there? So making sure you have that. Making sure that the team, if the team is very important to the process, some managers it's more important than others, making sure the team is stable. Does the team constantly turn over and that's a problem? Or is the team constantly turning over? It's not a problem because actually it's all about the one individual manager. So look at some of those characteristics. That's in theory what we'd like to do. Again, the question is, there's usually a correlation between bad performance and something else going awry. And so that's where it becomes a little more difficult in practice. There could be a situation where just bad luck that that concentrated portfolio produces a sort of an outlier negative uh, return realization. But it could very well be that it's also correlated with other negative signs of the manager in terms of size, in terms of motivation, in terms of maybe they've they've increased their fees because they they could, they've worsened the liquidity terms because they could. So there, there's oftentimes a correlation, and so trying to separate those out becomes very difficult. Yeah, you know, I used, I used to tell our team that we wanted to try to disaggregate the decision about a manager from the decision of when to exit. Yeah. No, that's a good. That's a good point. Because yep, so, you know, I agree with that. Behaviorally, we know that when performance is weak, that's when you get maximum scrutiny. Right, and it also, to your point, tends to show the warts. Yeah, you know, if there are real problems. Right, but the assets they own may not know that. 
Right. And that's really tough. So when you're in the situation where you've decided for all the right reasons that we need to exit and, and find a better long-term solution, but in that moment, you still might be better off hanging around for a little bit mm-hmm. and recovering losses. Mm-hmm. It's just a super, super tough decision-making process at that time. Yeah, no, it's tough. We try to constantly reassess what we've done well and not done well on that front, but I think we're in constant learning mode. Yeah. So let's turn to the third core principle. The third core principle is an interesting one that we put there. I mean, again, everyone says this. So these are not, I haven't, these are not unique core principles. Price matters. And so one easy way to express that is to say, people will say, well, we're value investors. Very overused term. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, modern finance would say value is sort of, you know, you know, a low price earnings multiple, low price to book, just low price. That isn't necessarily what we're doing. We're generally investing with managers that we think have unique views on companies and the price that they're paying for their companies is less what they think is the intrinsic value. But by a standard definition could be a growth company. And in fact, if anything, our portfolios had a slight growth bias over an extended period of time. Where this comes into play is getting back to how we allocate to different managers, is making sure you have the discipline that when someone has been doing well, and part of the reason they've done well is because, uh, and again, a lot of these managers are low turnover, is their portfolio has just gotten pricier and pricier and pricier. Yep. It could very well be that they've done well because they happen to be in companies that are just growing their earnings faster and the company's still on a valuation metric or about the same or maybe a little pricier. But sometimes it's just that the market starts paying more and more and more for the same earnings stream. Is making sure you have the discipline to take, you may still like the manager, but making sure you have the discipline to rebalance, take some money away from that manager. Making sure that the kind of the flip side, if you have managers that actually have still like, don't have any of those characteristics we talked about in the prior uh, point about some of these long-term relationships, they've still stayed at the, a good size, but it, it just turns out whatever their, maybe it's region, their style is out of favor and they've underperformed, making sure you have the discipline to give them more money. Right. And so that's part of what we're doing or what we're saying with Price Matters. You know, example with that is we had funded a really strong credit manager that's a little more liquid, more of a traditional high yield manager uh, over a year ago when credit spreads had widened out. And then just they know that we're using them as kind of as a discipline that we're going to add when spreads are wide and take money off the table. So we recently took some money off the table there. and. Do you also apply that to the asset class level? And um, now the the old Brinson study that ninety yeah. percent return driven by asset allocation. And if you do, when is it? When when do price does price get extreme enough that it makes sense to take action? It's a, it's a great question. I would say we do a little of that, but the pro- the problem you've run into is everything is more or less at the asset class level, whether it's public private. Well, they're both pretty expensive. Yeah, and private's harder to time because you know, right now multiples have been increasing across really every private for just about every private strategy. 
and they're increasing because there's so much dry powder out there and people are just you know putting it to work and paying more and more and more but when you commit today if i were committing to a private you know buyout manager today they may not deploy the capital for four years right you don't and know. so it's it's a harder one to time and there's also this wider dispersion of outcomes such that if you're investing in a really truly a, a good great private manager even though top down wise they're the vast universe of companies that they're potentially could buy are expensive they generally can distinguish themselves and so it's harder to do at that kind of top down asset class level so but yes it certainly we look at that but it becomes i'd say ever more difficult to do so your your fourth core principle is retaining experienced and dedicated staff yeah uh, which is simple to say. Well, I guess I'm going to expand the fourth one to being quality people. And so broadly go, defined, broadly internal defined. and external. Internal, external. You go back in my history, and again, going back, I was a math science guy, and then I got a PhD in economics. You're very mathematical. And the more experience I've had and the longer I've been around, you just realize it's all about the quality of the people. Um, you try to improve your odds of success by, again, get also getting back to one of the first points of having incentive structures that create more of an alignment of interest in between you know, managers we're investing with and our outcomes. They're investing in companies and, and them shaping alignment of interest with their underlying companies and outcomes. But ultimately, it's the quality of people and you know, we'll certainly make mistakes both on the hiring front of managers as well as the hiring front internally, but a lot of effort goes into that. And if there's anything that I think we do well but can continue to improve upon, it's that because I think that ultimately is going to be the biggest determinant of our success. Yeah. How do you assess, particularly externally with a, with a manager, how do you assess the quality of a person ahead of time? Part of what we try to do is to, I would almost equate it to the job that either a journalist or historian did. When they're trying to capture what is true and what is fiction and what is um, just, it could be good PR, it could be bad PR, and try to tease out fact from fiction from really noisy stories that you get. We try to go out and do a lot of reference checking on people and you're you're rarely going to get something that's a hundred percent in terms of glowing or a hundred percent negative it's going to be this middle ground that's noisy and so it's not unlike what an historian is trying to do by doing a biography on you know hamilton it's you're going to try to you know get letters you're going to try to you know Hamilton. You're not going to be able to interview people that knew him, but you're you're looking at correspondence. You're looking at a lot of circumstantial evidence with people that are exist today, as opposed to 200 years ago. You can talk to a lot of people and see, and you're you're trying to get the truest picture of what they're like in terms of how they treat other people, how they would treat you as a partner, how they treat people that will work for them how they treat people that, that they're going to invest in. 
and try to get as much of that in terms of the quality from an ethics standpoint and then try to get as much of the quality from an intelligence, investor intelligence standpoint. And it's just a lot of legwork. But it's something that I think we do well, but I feel that there's, there's you can never put too much effort into yeah, that. Yeah. So let's turn to the last core principle, the principle of diversity. Diversif- yeah, diversification is... I think you can go in many different directions on that front. I mean, the most straightforward one is kind of going back to modern portfolio theory is that, you know, you can diversify away a lot of risks and we do. So you could almost, and we talked about this earlier, you can almost argue if you go down to the security level, given the fact that we're investing with managers that are capacity constrained, we can only get so much invested with them. And then they buy individual companies or securities that at the security or at individual asset level, we have a lot of diversification. So what's a what's typically a, the largest size position? A, a large position that? for us is going to be in the order of an, at the underlying company level, 100, maybe 200 basis points. And so that's that's it. So that's there's a lot of diversification. And is that there. too much diversification? Well, so that, that gets to the second yeah. question. You could almost argue that since we're attracted to these managers – that have you know anywhere from 10 to 30 securities. Some of those are quality companies that you might hold forever. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just own a portfolio like that? Well, the problem, you can't do that with a manager. Well, then well, why don't you just do it directly? And then we get back to the, again, the circular argument we talked about before where the problems related to us doing it internally. It just becomes a challenge. So yes and no, given our implementation, the way we can implement, I think it's probably a reasonable amount of diversification because for us, a large allocation to an individual manager is going to be several hundred million dollars. It's hard to get much more allocated to the managers for for whom most people are closed and we just can't get any more allocated. So that's diversification. The other thing I would say on diversification is you have to have the humility to know that you are gonna make mistakes. And it gets back to the kind of the first point is never let, even though you know, people always say, well, if you're, you know, you like something, we'll just go big, go be bold, but never be, be very mindful that you're also going to make mistakes and never let an individual mistake just constantly drag you down for a long period of time, as opposed to something that's once and done, you learn from it and you move on, you know, you're going to have mistakes. And then there's a relationship on that front with liquidity and diversification. I'm a much bigger fan in less diversification when things are very liquid. When you change your mind. When you can change your mind. Yeah. But when things are illiquid, I size them smaller. And so I believe in more diversification. So you have to have the humility to know that some of these very liquid, whether it's private equity funds, whether it's you know underlying you know, co-investments that we're gonna do, you know, as part of investing in private equity funds, you just have to know that you don't want any one of those bets knowing that you can't reverse those because you're going to be making mistakes. And then the last thing of diversification is just, it's more diversity than diversification, is having a team that is very diversified in terms of their backgrounds yeah. and the way they view the world. Because if everyone is always in complete unison 
in terms of, oh, yes, that's a great idea, or yes, no, that's a bad idea. And everyone just shaking their heads. Everything you discuss, you're just going to be making awful decisions. So having that diversity of thought, which I'd say is a subset of diversification, I think is really healthy. So when you roll up all of these processes, so much of what we've talked about, and it's really great stuff, is on the individual manager level. What does your asset allocation look like across the, the entire portfolio for Virginia? So when I start at the, at the framework level and then move to the, how, yeah, what, it looks, what it currently looks like. So the framework level is as opposed to having targeted allocations to what I call different strategies, public equity versus private equity, you know, hedge funds. What I do is I have a level of market risk, mm-hmm. drawdown risk that I feel comfortable with. Drawdown risk. Yeah. So, so risk... So driven by yeah. how much you think you yes. might lose and, in yes. a bad environment. And okay. so you could and so that gives us a policy portfolio, which right now is sixty percent public equity, thirty percent public bonds, ten percent public real estate, all global. And that's a level of drawdown risk that we re underwrite every year that the university is comfortable would be comfortable with. And and so to be clear th- that those drawdowns are based on history. Is it the worst experience yes. in history? Yes. Okay. You can just look at a history. And again, we also know that there's this false, you know, one of my, it's not one of my top five core tenets, but it's a side tenet, which is getting back to sort of quant versus qual is a lot of quantitative analyses, I think, give people a false sense of precision. And we provide a lot of quantitative statistics about our portfolio, but I also... I'm a firm believer that you know a lot of mistakes are made when you kind of take it to the nearest hundredth decimal point mm-hmm. and just sure. you know that's a sign that you have a sense of humor that you think you can be that accurate. So it's really but it's it does set a level that you know that if you have 60% 60 30 10 versus 90 10 0 it'd be very different. And you know it's a level of risk that I feel over over a long period of time and the ultimate test is, is it a level such that if we, you know, the market does draw down again another 50%, which we've seen, you know, two of those over the last two decades, will we rebalance or are we going to be permanently scarred? You know, if you're at, say, 90, 10, you're, you're more likely to be permanently scarred Absolutely. and not rebalance. Yeah. I feel it's a level that our institution can live with and feel comfortable with. I then have separately a liquidity risk. So it's, in a sense, it sets a market risk budget. I then have a liquidity risk budget that I feel comfortable with in terms of minimum level of liquidity that will enable me to meet the capital calls from our private managers, meet the payout to the university, and just also rebalance. And there's the way, you know there's a fairly simplistic way that we have that embedded in our investment policy statement. It's a minimum of 20% that we have access to within three months, a minimum of 30% over a year, and a maximum unfunded commitments of to private whatever of 25% of the total pool. And that's a, that's, those are all constraints that we have to live with. And you know, subject to that, we can do whatever. You know, we, we have this kind of notion of finding the best ideas such that when you put that all together, we maintain a comparable level of risk on a market risk and liquidity risk and live within that. And so hence, you know, over time, but it's also like moving a battleship because, you know, we do have a lot in private investments. We do have a lot in relatively less liquid 
hedge funds, even our long only public managers, which again are these friend, concentrated friendly activists, um, are less than perfectly liquid. So living within that liquidity threshold, it's it's when you tweak the portfolio, it's like moving in battleship. So what are some of the things that we've done? Our private equity, which is a mix of buyout, growth equity, and venture capital, has come down from over the last, say, six years, from low 20s down to 16%. Given the pace at which we've invested, it'll probably come down just a smidge more. Public equity has gone up from about 20% to closer to 27%. And then long short equity is really more or less stayed about the same. And that's been more manager specific than anything. And then ultimately, a lot of those allocations are very manager specific. Right. So one of the other lenses we talked about in terms of the ability of the institution to stay the course is relative performance. So if you look at, or how much do you look at your structure, 60, 30, 10, versus some of your peers? You know, a Yale, which is probably closer to a 90, 10 structure. Does the deviation just from having more of equity factor into your consideration of can we stay the course if we're in a strong market and we underperform just because we're less exposed? We look at it, but I don't want it to drive any decisions. So, you know, every year when we review our fiscal year end performance and look at, you know, how do we do relative benchmark? What were some of the reasons it outperformed relative benchmark? And then how do we do relative to our peers? And we, you know, we classify peers as, endowments exceeding $2 billion in size. And last year, I think it was 36 or 37 institutions. The board has been, I think, understands and constituents understand, because we tell them this all the time, that it's hard to look, even though people still do, look at it over a one-year period. Such a big chunk of our portfolio now, about 32%, and then even more so of our peer portfolio are in privates, where the marks come, you know, in a less frequent manner. So looking at annual performance, although again, inevitably people will do that, it's harder to do. And so we really encourage people to look three, five, 10, 20 years. That's A, but we do that. There's an acknowledgement and an understanding that the risk embedded in our portfolio is a little lower than what some of the largest of our large peers have invested in. You mentioned Yale. I know you know they have less in cash and bonds than we have. You know we've been running. I I try to run between eight and twelve percent in cash and low duration treasuries, and it's been closer to the the high end of that range. It's now kind of in the middle of the range, but that's still you know higher than what Yale and some of our other other larger peers have. They have more in privates. And then when we think of, because again, when I think of the risk of the at the underlying level, we ascribe a higher risk rating to privates than we do publics, for the most part. Certainly more than long short equity, which has a beta of closer to 0.4. And so we have a, you know, again, we try to target a beta that's just under 0.7, uh, beta to global public equity. Um, our large peers are anywhere from say. 0.75.8. And so there's an acknowledgement, but I don't want that to drive because if we started doing that, that would be a problem. We also understand that we have more in long short equity than our peers, but we don't want that to say, well, maybe we should have less or, you know, we have less in 
for years we've had less in real estate. Well, we don't want that to drive. Well, let's do more real estate, even if we don't think we're that's something that plays to our strength. It, everything about what I've tried to develop a culture is to let's play to our strength. If we're good at something, let's do more of it. If we're not really bad at something, let's either not do it or try to figure out what we can do to get better, but not just force an allocation so we can look just like our yeah. peers. I, I find it really fascinating that what you're talking about is putting your best foot forward. Yes. But we've also talked about this recognition that w- how you'll be evaluated is both absolute and relative. So at some point in time, if you were, if you were only great at long-short equity – and you had 100% of the endowment in long short equity, it might meet the risk and return objectives for the university, yes. but it would look so different from your peers that at some point in time, that would cause a problem to stay that course. I think that's a great analogy. I mean, that that would be a great example right now because long short equity is, as, as we've discussed, it's an area near and dear to your heart as well as mine. It's, it's a strategy that has not done as well recently. I think, I, I still not think, but I still have conviction I think what people have missed is that the big value on the short side is is very episodic. It's not just month in or year in and year out. It's going to happen, you know, it happened in the early 2000s, it happened in the later 2000s, and it's been more challenging recently because the market's just been going up. But there are going to be opportunities. I look at it on a sort of risk-adjusted alpha basis. They're still doing fine. But if that were too big, a so I still have conviction. I conviction of the managers. We're constantly weeding it out. We're constantly looking for some of the characteristics we talked about before that would cause me to want to move away from manager or maybe hire a new manager that has you know better fundamental characteristics. But if I were worried that if I went 100% long short equity, I would have more worry that all of a sudden people would go, why do you have 100% long short equity? Your peers have 10% and long short equity. I would be more fearful that we would dial that back at just the wrong time versus right now where we've had a debate, should we actually do more? Knowing that it's, you know, now it is probably one of the least loved strategies and there's there's evidence that sh- that it's becoming easier to short. There are fewer, you know, fewer competitors that are doing single name shorts. So there's there's things that could be setting up for an attractive run. But if I had a hundred percent allocation to long short equity, that wouldn't happen. You've talked a little bit in your writings about the expression of themes within the portfolio. I'm really curious of how you come up with a theme, how you implement and then how you make the decision and size themes. That's a, that's a tougher one, only because I think themes are harder to come up with in this environment. Getting back to one of the, my earlier points, which is there's so many people looking for themes. Oh, by the way, are themes so. ever easy to come no, up with? No, that's true. They're, they're never. <laughs> well, they're always easy in that hindsight. I mean, I think every, every manager saw the subprime. Oh, by the way, we went long credit in 09, right. too. Of course we did. So, no, it's never easy to spot themes. What I'm always trying to get people to be, as opposed to the top, most top-down theme, which is just equities versus bonds, which we're not going to do, is something that has a little, that is not you know, quite as 
discussed has some might have some legs but could take years to play out and again one of the small themes in our portfolio just to give you an example is you know what's gone on in japan where you've had this situation where the equity market has underperformed since its peak in the late 80s is underperformed really every other geography a lot of managers have just given up on japan Managers, there are very few managers left that have just been in Japan for that entire time. So you have interesting dynamics in terms of just fatigue about Japan. And then couple that with our interest in friendly activism, where there are managers that I think can take advantage of an interesting environment where there seems to be a greater awareness today that managing companies for the benefit of shareholders as opposed to broadly defined stakeholders, which is really everyone in Japanese society, is more acceptable. And there are more people that would be amenable to doing that. And so you have a very large market with companies that are very well run, but haven't always been run producing high ROEs uh, for shareholders. It strikes me as an interesting arena, but again, it's kind of the intersection of a manager as well as as an environment that could take a long time to play out. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's turn to some of my favorite customary closing questions. What is your favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time? I love tennis. And I used to be an okay tennis player. And as I've gotten older, my, my body's gotten more decrepit. I play <laughs> substantially less tennis, but I still love to get out there. And I've, all my kids play, and I love to get out and play with them. But I love to watch tennis. I love to watch it live. I love to, if I just go want to relax at home in, in the evening, I will turn it to the tennis channel and just watch <laughs> a tennis match. And I take a lot of joy of, of just watching tennis. I've enjoyed watching my kids play tennis. And I know it's, it's a way of passing time. Um, I love the sport. UVA tennis, we just won our third national championship in a row. We've won four in the last five years. It's been a, you know, one of the treats of being associated with of UVA. But I, I would say that would be. Yeah. Well, this, this may end up being related, may not. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? As a fan, since I grew up in the New York area and I'm a struggling Mets, Jets, Knicks fan, I can barely remember when Joe Namath and the Jets won, but I still have a vivid memory of when the Mets won and uh, when Mookie Wilson had that slow ground ball to first base to Bill Buckner, Buckner. and it went between his legs. I remember I was watching that in Greenwich Village with... At that time, my fiance, who's now my wife, and her sister and her husband. And I remember them saying that, Mookie, if you get a hit, we'll name our firstborn child after you. But they, they did not name him. <laughs> he's named Gordon. He's not named Mookie. So that's one. Second one is, again, I love tennis. And when my daughter's team won the state championship, oh, yeah. it was a really neat moment. That's awesome. What phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over again that most stuck with you? Oh, oh, that's a really, 
<laughs> maybe eat, eat your vegetables. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. That's a really. Uh, I'd say, it's, as opposed to a phrase, one of the things they were very good at. They're very both very disciplined, and I would say, sort of the discipline, hard work, being focused on the long term. With, without coming up with a single phrase other than eat your vegetables and maybe that's a sign of discipline. I can't think about that, but they were, I'd say that discipline, hard work, you know, kind of long-term focus uh, is what they helped instill. And eat your vegetables. And eat your vegetables. If you could start over today, money was no object and you couldn't be an allocator or, or an investor, what would you most like to do? Oh, hands down, I would just teach. So I love being in the classroom. I often thought it'd be fun to be a high school math teacher because I feel it's oftentimes the way it's taught is not how I would teach it. And that's something I think I helped my kids with. But when I do find the time to get in the classroom, it's just time just passes. You're getting this this kind of special zone, this 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 the the um the, the book the rise of superman this this concept of the state of flow i know it's not like doing extreme sports but you get that same sense where it just you're just it's hard to describe yeah, this, awesome. that sense that you get in when you're in the front of a classroom what do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago <sighs> that's a great question there're probably so many things that i could fill up this whole this whole notebook uh, I'd say at the, the top of the list, one observation I gave you, which is this, I think there are so many investors that their simplistic answer is, if you love something, let's do more of it. Let's concentrate. And we're attracted to concentrated managers, but they have some liquidity is really seeing firsthand this notion that concentration works, but concentration and this trade-off between concentration and liquidity. So when something is less liquid, I concentrate less. And that's something without experiencing sort of the, the repercussions of that, I've, I've come at that kind of the hard yeah, way. Yeah. Last question. It is your waning days. You are 115 years old, hopefully. Sitting in your rocking chair, what advice would you give yourself today? So it's, fast forward, that's a long time in the future since I'm <laughs> way away from 115 years old. I, mean, I, re- I really do. I mean, this is, again, I'm not going to say anything that others have not said but we do seem to be expanding at an ever faster pace with technology. And so having an appreciation for that, wishing that I could see hundred in when I'm 115 what exactly that world ended up looking like, but knowing that that's going to have a, an, an immense impact. And so that's one of the reasons we spend so much time on technology. That's, so that's one the second piece of advice, which is advice that, again, I would give someone younger, is this notion of you know constantly travel. Mm. I try to do as much as I can, but 
I think the more you travel, whatever your field, there's things you learn and experience that you can't learn just sitting and reading. So the more you travel, I think your life is fuller. It makes you more creative. You see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. So I would think that 115-year-old version of me would tell me to travel even more. Larry, thank you so much. You're welcome. fascinating conversation. This is fun. Great. This is fabulous. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. 